Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. So I couldn't help but notice that we have a pretty good crowd today in both of our services. I think everybody's just anxious to get outside after that deep freeze we had. Uh, but we're really glad you're here today. It's a good day to come to church, um, to recognize the beginning of spiritual life of a young child, to come to the Lord's table, to sing uh, beautiful songs of truth, and uh, this morning to get into an incredible text from God's Word. So... A number of years ago, my wife and I, we were planning a trip to travel internationally with some friends. And this was really before the the height of Airbnb and VRBO. And so we're making our arrangements. And basically the way it worked was we booked our housing by emailing these people and they emailed us back. And that was it. And the whole thing kind of made me nervous because I'm like... You don't need a credit card. You don't need a deposit. Can I get some kind of feedback from some kind of booking system that seems legitimate? But no, like that was how it worked. We booked these people's houses by emailing them and they emailed us back and said, yep, we'll see you then. Sounds good. And I'm just thinking from a business perspective, how do you run a business like that? You know, how do you know if these people are coming? But more importantly, from my end, how do I know that when I get there halfway around the world, there's actually going to be a place for me to stay? And we, we went to four different cities. So there were f- four different places. And each time, I just knew we were going to get there and something was going to go wrong. Like this place didn't exist. There were other people staying there. We were just so anxious the whole time. It just was outside of our comfort zone. It didn't feel right. It did, there was no confidence. There was no assurance in the process. And I'm a person, I like assurance. And, and I think spiritually speaking... Assurance is a very big idea. It's very important that we know that there is a guarantee that there is an assurance on the process of salvation. So this morning, as we look at this incredible text from the book of Ephesians, we're going to see this role of the Holy Spirit as the guarantor. And Paul describes the Spirit as a deposit or earnest money guaranteeing our salvation. And we understand this concept, don't we? Because in America... We don't run things that loose, you know, like we require something up front. If it's a big project, you're going to have to put some money down. Uh, When you go to buy a home, you have to put up earnest money, which means that if you back out of the deal in a way that's not stipulated in the agreement, you walk away, you lose your money. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of that's happened to you. That would be a terrible experience. But but the reason you put a deposit down, right? We're we're recruiting mission teams right now. Over 100 people we hope to take on mission trips this year. And we're asking for deposits because what does the deposit say? The deposit says, I'm serious. I want to go. I want this to hold my spot. So we think about this idea of a guarantee, of a, of a deposit. And how mind-blowing is it that Scripture tells us That we have a deposit on our salvation, both the present experience. How can you know if you're in Christ? How can you know if you're saved? Well, we get the Holy Spirit, who's a deposit, who's the guarantee, the proof, the symbol of 
authenticity that we are in Jesus. So it's, it's a deposit, it's a guarantee on our current salvation and for our inheritance in the future that one day the process of salvation will be complete and that we will receive the fullness of the kingdom of God as our inheritance. Friends, I hope that we can grasp this truth just a little bit more this morning because it's beautiful, it's profound, and I think it really does affect the way that we walk as disciples of Jesus because we weren't meant to travel around the world not knowing whether we were going to have a place to sleep. We were meant for a greater assurance and confidence than that. And so as Paul presents the greatest news ever, he tells us the eternal plan of God. And he basically gives it to us in three movements. Not a simple formula. You really can't drill it down into a simple idea. But he basically tells us that movement one is God's plan from the very beginning. Before history began, God had a plan. And the power to execute that plan in real time and space. We have God the Father creating the plan. And then we have the second major movement, which is that Jesus came and he actually accomplished the will of the Father. He made salvation possible through his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his return. And then the third movement of that is the Holy Spirit in real time intervening in our lives, awakening us to what God has done in Christ, opening our eyes to see and us actually having the benefits of Christ applied to us. That is the power and work of the Holy Spirit. So again, we have the Trinity working together, the plan of God the Father, the action of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing us to salvation. And so I want to help us to see that the work of the Spirit as guarantor is only part of this divine, sovereign movement of God's grace to bring us into the family of God, and yes, to keep us in the family of God until the very end and the completion of our salvation. It's all part of this big plan, which is unraveled for us in Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, by the way, if you're ever stranded on a deserted island, which I hope you're not, and you can only take one page of one book, I'd say Ephesians chapter 1 is a pretty good choice. I'd be on the top of my list. So, First we see God's plan. We see God's plan. That's where Ephesians begins. Everything that we need is found in Jesus Christ. And in verse 4, we're told uh, that we were chosen by God to be a part of his plan. And then again in verse 11, he reiterates the same idea. He builds upon it, really. He says, In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Paul is saying here very carefully, he's emphasizing that God is not responding or reacting. He's not responding or reacting. Rather, he has carefully designed a plan that he is now revealing and fulfilling. It's his plan. He's now revealing it and he is fulfilling it. In particular, his will to choose and redeem his people. And so in verse 4, he's talking about God's plan to choose his people before time began. In verse 11, he carries the argument forward saying that the Spirit now comes with an effectual call that was already planned and he works out his particular purposes in the lives of people who respond to the gospel because of the work of spirit in their life. And we talked about that pre-work a few weeks ago. The Holy Spirit is preparing us for this moment of salvation. Now, here's the deal. We're in Ephesians 1, and it talks about calling and election and predestination. And those are controversial topics. And the truth is that people who love God 
and who love Jesus and who take the Bible seriously have different approaches to those topics. They come to different conclusions with different nuances of how those things work. And I'm okay with that. But I think I have to get into it a little bit. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty details, but I have to to talk about it because the role of the Holy Spirit in this process as the guarantee of our salvation is all part of this whole plan of God, where Ephesians takes us. And so the big question people want to ask is, did God choose us or did we choose him? Yes, the million-dollar question. But that one's actually an easier one to answer. The answer is yes and yes. <laughs> did God choose us? Yes. Did we choose him? Yes. There actually, it's the question underneath the question that's the harder one to answer, and that I'm not necessarily going to answer this morning. But I would like to share with you a little quote from the Westminster Confession. This is a part of our tradition. It was written centuries ago. The language has been updated somewhat, but it's still a little tricky to unpack. But the Westminster Confession presents a kind of nuanced understanding of how God can be in complete control of all things at all times, totally sovereign. And yet also we have a free will and we have to respond to the work of God in our life. And here's how the Westminster unpacks this. It says, from all eternity and by the completely wise and holy purpose of his own will, God has freely and unchangeably ordained whatever happens. This ordainment does not mean, however, that God is the author of sin. He's not or that he represses the will of his created beings, or that he takes away the freedom or contingency of secondary causes. Rather, the will of those created beings and the freedom and contingency of secondary causes are established by him. So you got it? Pretty simple, right? God's completely sovereign, and yet there's also human responsibility and freedom. I think in the midst of this sort of conversation and debate, there's a couple of things that I think we can all agree upon that I think are important in understanding how God works in our lives. The first one is that we have to see in Scripture that God has a plan and nothing can stop it. God has a plan. We may not always understand it. We may not understand or comprehend or like the way His plan is unfolding in the world or even in our lives individually. But the story of scripture is of a God who has a plan, who is in charge of all things and who is accomplishing his will and his purposes. In other words, if God wanted the world to go a different way, he would do it. The world is operating the way that he wants it. That, that presents a lot of frustration and a lot of confusion. I get that, but that's the story. And it's actually designed to be a comforting thing. That we would know that there's a God who is in charge. And even if we don't understand the details, we trust that. Psalm 115 states it beautifully. I love this. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. God's sovereign. He's either sovereign or he's not. He's sovereign whether you believe that he is or not. He's sovereign. That's the story of history. It's the story of the Bible. And I think this is important detail as well. In salvation, God makes the first move. God makes the last move. God is, in fact, involved in every aspect of our salvation from beginning to end. That's one of the things that we learn by focusing on the Holy Spirit. That God brings us into faith. He sustains us in faith. He's responsible for our discipleship. And that one day we have the promise that he will bring this process of us becoming like Jesus to a final conclusion. One day we'll be like him. And it'll be amazing. And it's important to think about this process. Because the role of the Holy Spirit as guarantor is part of this sovereign process. 
In order to have confidence that the Spirit is the guarantor, we have to understand that assurance of salvation is based on God's sovereign grace. And the purpose behind all of this, of of Paul telling us this, is the glory of God. That God would get the glory in our salvation and that we wouldn't. That's why God has done it the way he has done it. So that in the end, we cannot take credit. But to say that our best efforts in righteousness is nothing compared to the glory of God who is saving us. And in two times in this section, in verse 12 and verse 14, he says that God's purpose through all of this is to bring himself glory, to praise his glory, is to recognize that God alone is God and that we are not, to give him the recognition and honor and submission that he is due. In fact, to bow and surrender our lives to those sovereign purposes. And the Holy Spirit's role in this process, there are many, but here it's talking about, is to call us to repentance, like we talked about last week, and ultimately to open our eyes to believe in the truth of the gospel. And that's where Paul goes next in verse 13. He says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then at the beginning of verse 13, or the next part of verse 13, when you believed, you were marked by the Holy Spirit. So it's when you heard and you believed. That's the moment in real time that we receive the Holy Spirit. It's through turning away from trying to do life on our own, through repentance and through faith in what Christ has done for us. And that results in a very great guarantee, and that is God's guarantee to us. Verse 13, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So two ideas here that are related. It's the same concept, two different images. One is of a seal, a seal, not the animal, of course. A seal was the mark of ownership in the ancient world. They would put the seal on things that they owned, their property. They were often made of hard stone or precious metals. They had a distinctive image engraved on them. We see a number of examples in the Old Testament. The use of the signet ring. That idea was that if they were communicating some message, right, before they had email and text and all the different ways we can communicate now, they had to write things down on paper. It was expensive, and they had to send the message old school by foot. Well, maybe horse, whatever, camel, I don't know. They would send the message, and they would seal the message by dipping the signet ring in hot wax and putting it on so that there was, there was a symbol of authenticity that this message had not been tampered with, that it came from the person who it says it comes from because it comes with their seal on it that it had not been opened. And think about that. The Holy Spirit is the seal on us of our salvation. The symbol of authenticity, the sign that that it's the real deal, that we are really in Christ. The Spirit is the seal. We are from God. We are his people. And the verse ends, until the redemption of those who are God's possession. We belong to God. He created us, and in fact, we are his special possession. You could translate this, God's inheritance. Two crazy related truths in this passage. One is that we have an inheritance that is guaranteed for us through the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The other one is that we are actually the inheritance of God. That's wild. This is what God 
is doing in the world, he is bringing us into relationship with himself. It's a relational endeavor. We are his children, and he's given us this this spirit to keep the relationship close until one day we will have the full family reunion with the fullness of the triune God, with God's people in the eternal kingdom. But in the meantime, we have the spirit to draw us and to keep us close to God and to work out our salvation, to apply the truths of what Jesus has done for us. Now, in all of this, to me, there's a big question that I have and maybe that you've asked, which is, okay, if the Spirit is the guarantee that we're in Christ, then what's the guarantee that we're in the Spirit? In other words, from a human perspective, how do I know I have the Holy Spirit? How do I know? And some people will say, well, you have to have this supernatural experience, something where you, know, you feel the power of God and you know, kind of like Paul on the road to Damascus. And some people get that experience, but that's the exception. It's the exception in Scripture, and I think it's the exception for most believers. What do what ordinary believers who don't get that road to Damascus experience get? We get ongoing confirmation from a couple of sources. The first one, and we're going to talk about each of these in the days ahead as we continue in this series. The first one is... The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit is the evidence of the Spirit's work in our life. That we're becoming more more loving, more patient, more joyful. Now, none of us is going to do that perfectly. Some days it feels like two steps forward, three steps back. I get that. It's a messy process. But the trajectory is that the Spirit is changing us. And there is evidence of fruit in our life. And the fruit of the Spirit is the demonstration that you're becoming a new person. The only way that happens is by the Spirit of God. Evidence of the Spirit. The second source we have is the gifts of the Spirit. And you can be a talented person and you can do a lot of great things and serve things, but spiritual gifts, when they're used in humility to serve within the context of the body of Christ, those gifts only come from the Spirit. They're spiritual gifts. They're the gifts of God's Spirit. Evidence that the Spirit is at work in your life. The third one I would say is the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that power to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ through our lives. That power comes from the Holy Spirit. And so if you have that power, you're seeing the fruit, you're working and operating in those gifts of the Spirit, that's all evidence that the Spirit is at work in your life. How do you know you have the Spirit? You see the evidence of it. You see the fruit, the unmistakable experience of knowing that you are becoming a different person. It's God's proof to you that you are in Christ because you have the Holy Spirit. The internal witness to us each and every day. And so if we are in the Spirit, we have the assurance of salvation. I think this is an important issue. Because assurance is is absolutely necessary to have healthy Christian discipleship. We were meant to have assurance Not to wonder whether things were going to work out in the end. Not to be like me traveling internationally, wondering if I had a place to stay. We were meant to have a confidence and an assurance in our salvation. Not one day to think, okay, maybe I'm good with God. And the next day to think, I'm not really sure. No, 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 no. We were created to have assurance. And we have an internal testimony of that assurance through the Holy Spirit. And we have so many scriptures that point to this reality. It's hard to pick just a few, but here's a few samples. In John 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. If you're in Christ, no one can snatch you out of his hands. Not the devil, 
not your neighbor, not yourself. No one can snatch you. No one can separate those who are in Christ from the love of Christ. It says in Romans, in the next chapter in Romans, we have this great chain of events. It says those he predestined, he called and those he called, he justified and those he justified, he also glorified. What does it mean glorified? That's the end of the line. That's the completion of our salvation. So those that are beginning in the process, he will bring to the end of the process. It's a guarantee, friends. It's not like a used car salesman. Sorry if you're a used car salesman. (laughs) You can know with confidence because we have the assurance of the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the challenges to applying a text like this is that technically speaking, the text does not ask us to do anything specifically. In other words, there are no imperatives. There are no commands. Plenty of places in the Bible where it says, show hospitality, love your neighbor, love your enemies, be patient, be kind, commands. And then there's places in Scripture where we have to understand we need the Spirit to show us how we are to respond. And in fact, a text like this is so big and such a big idea, it's hard to know what do we do with it. What is our response to these amazing truths of what God has done for us in Christ? Well, I think it flows with the four C's that we have that is our strategy, these four domains of our spiritual lives, communion, community, calling, and commission. How do you respond to the truth that before the beginning of time, God had a plan to save you by his grace? How do you respond to a great truth like that? Worship. That's the only response. God This is amazing. God, we love you. God, we trust you. God, we set aside time to acknowledge that you are God. A worship that is characterized by gratitude. Gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. By building a gospel community that is humble and yet confident. See, this is where it becomes super practical. If we we want to be confident as believers... We have to build a community around an assurance, assured message. And that is that we are in Christ. And how do we know we have the Holy Spirit testifying to this reality, reminding us to believe this truth that we are in Jesus and what he has done for us is sufficient. To live a gospel-fueled calling, to live out the values of the gospel in joyful obedience. Not trying to earn God's love and favor, but because we already have it. And finally, to live into this gospel-fueled commission. To have gospel conversations with people. To share the witness of this great news. And we can do that knowing that the results are not ultimately up to us. Only the Spirit of God can convince someone, can open someone's eyes to see this amazing truth. Yes, we want to be winsome in our witness. We want to be great in our love and deeds towards others. We want to point to the reality of this inbreaking kingdom of God in our midst. But we can't save anyone. It's not our job. And so we go about our commission differently. We measure, in fact, the results differently. Because the goal is faithfulness, trusting that God will produce the results. So as we come to a conclusion this morning, I want to read for you another passage that basically shares the same idea of Ephesians chapter 1. It talks about the Holy Spirit as our seal and our deposit. 
And after reflecting on these truths for just a few minutes and unpacking it, I want you to, I want you to hear this in a different way, but the same message. And I want you to, to receive this with a spirit of, of worship and gratitude and humble surrender. You might even close your eyes. I don't know, whatever would be helpful for you, but would you receive these words and this incredible promise? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. It says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Would you join me in prayer? Father, would you help us to believe this incredibly good news? God, I pray this morning that we would receive the assurance and confidence that we are in Christ. We would believe that truth. We would live into that reality. I pray for those today who may be struggling with that. Many believers who struggle with doubt, who struggle with certainty. And I pray that you would give them the internal witness of your Holy Spirit, assuring them and comforting them. God, that you are holding on to us. God, that you are a faithful God. You have called us into your family and you will carry us and you will take us home. God, may we live in joyful response and obedience to that truth. May it change the way that we walk with you. Change the way that we see others. God, give us the confidence of your spirit within us the guarantee of our salvation. May it all be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.